Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. Hello, friends. Welcome to Unsiloed the show that busts the echo chambers. If you dig hearing opposing perspectives about big issues from a point of mutual respect, if you like debate but love light, not heat, welcome home. Jesus on location. On location, exactly. On location, location shoot. Man on the street. You are the man on the street. Yeah, exactly. um, so, so we've got a quick show, three fun items today to kind of get to. Obviously, there could be a longer discussion on each, but we're going to keep it pithy and short and clever and deep and all those good things. First one actually is close to home for us. So uh, full disclosure, the uh, data that we're going to be talking about with this first one is actually part of some work that our firm Black Brown has done. Uh, but nevertheless, does touch on industry-wide dynamics, and which is why we thought it was actually interesting. So Jesus, you and I wrote an op-ed, which is going to be published in the, um, you know, kind of industry that covers manufacturing, roofing, all these different things in a variety of different places. But it's on behalf of some of the data that we found uh, working with Owens Corning. Uh, Can you kind of just just high level kind of touch on the like what brought us into this sort of whole industry or category? You and I don't have a lot of experience in this. Yeah, I think part of the the driver for this was really trying to better understand how um, home ownership and really the whole industry was evolving and really the role that Latinos are playing both as new homeowners and the growth that is happening there and also specifically in the work, the workforce, right? Um, looking at how the contractor world is evolving um, as it is already, when we think about home ownership, or when you think about specifically uh, working on homes, uh, and especially in the case of roofing, like what, like over fifty percent of all roofing or roofers yeah. are Latino, right, and across the country. So it's already a really major share of that workforce. And um, but the part that is growing at a really significant pace is the number of contractors Latino. So. I think what you're seeing across the board is that you're now seeing companies start to look at this and grapple with the idea: how do we better cater to this demographic that has become a, that is going to become the a driving force to how the sector changes, and a specific understanding how their uh, behavior is different than the general market. You know how they learn, how they train, who they are. Like in any case, when you look at the Latino market, there's always all these uh, perceptions that are there. Uh, all these assumptions that sometimes are justified and incorrect, many times they're not. 
And a lot of that work was really trying to understand how this demographic had actually uh, evolved, who they were, how they operated, um, which came back with some really, really interesting uh, yeah. sort of insights that sort of came from that, from that conversation. Well, the starting point that kind of opened our eyes was the realization that 30% of the country's contractors, right? These are, you know, people who are, uh, you know, in, in the trades and who manage teams that do all kinds of things, right? 30% of U.S. contractors were Hispanic. To your point, half of the labor market, half of the U.S. labor workers, let's say, in this uh, industry are Hispanic. And in the point of home ownership, about 70% of all the U.S. homeowner growth is coming from the Latino market. So when you take that 30, 50, and 70, you know, to us, it was like, wow, you know, for people who spend a ton in the ton of time in the consumer or the B2C world, to see an opportunity that massive and then recognize that a lot of players in that industry don't have yet a really fully fleshed out strategy to speak with those constituents in a different way it, it is kind of a big you know, big aha moment for us. And it led to, to this work, to your point. Now, what I'm going to do, Jesus, is I want to, I'm going to go through just a high level, the, the sort of headlines from this op-ed. And I'd like for you to comment on those. Um, sure. And then, you know, if people want, we'll include show notes in the show notes links, and then they can read the op-ed for themselves. And there's a lot of things that are happening around this, but let's just, let's just punch through those really quickly. So um, as it relates to Latino contractors, because we, we looked at different uh, cohorts for this op-ed, but let's start with number one. There's a 70% higher likelihood of Latino contractors nationwide purchasing materials through retail channels. Why is that important? It's super interesting because in that, in, that, in that specific sector, I think for those that may not be familiar, in things like home development, uh, and home improvement, many times these biz small business operators, right, which are contractors, they are typically not buying material from the same places that you and I will normally go to. Think of well, your Home Depot, your Lowe's. Um, all, yeah, Lowe's, all of those, right? Um, usually you have these big distributors. And it makes sense for the reason, higher volume, more catered service, all, all of those things, right? And, and it tends to be sort of the norm for anyone that is in the B2B space that specifically services these contractors uh, to really work closely with these large distributors, right? So this idea that for this demographic, they're actually acquiring product at a much higher share in a place where normally consumers will be, will be buying product. It's a really uh, uh, interesting opportunity in the case that it creates this dynamic where you may be able to kind of double dip, be able to better market to both folks that are in that sort of contractor world, but are still buying from retail locations and also be able to engage with end consumers, which are homeowners who are also mm. going to the same kind of retail locations. And that is a unique sort of opportunity. So this is a kind of, kind of case where, you know, you get the insight, you'll be like, oh, that's interesting. And then, but the downstream implications of that kind of sort of difference in terms of where people are, are purchasing product makes a pretty big difference in how you think about marketing to these uh, to these audiences, these constituents, right? Whether it's at a, at a B2B side, it's contractors, or B2C on homeowners. Especially with uh, the fact that a lot of uh, companies that are manufacturing and using um, those distribution sales channels uh, and leaning into them, they're kind of out of sync a little bit, right, with where the demand is. So either mm -hmm. the distributors need to do a better job or they need to look at the retail channel in a different way, right? Or both. Um and that's something that, that's really interesting. Okay, here's the next one. Uh, for Latinos, aesthetics play an outsized role. Yeah, that's another, um, it kind of goes back to what are the drivers? What is the reason people are actually 
making home improvement changes, right? So there is things that you think about. So practically speaking, um, you know, these are things you need to do because functionally you need to improve your home. And then there's things you want to do because you want it to be visually look better or just be upgraded. And that's a really big difference, you know, in those two kind of scenarios. Think about it from the context. Like I lived for a number of years, nine years, as a matter of fact, in Texas, right? Mm-hmm. And it was almost like uh, like clockwork. The second there was a big hailstorm, all these uh, roofing jobs, also all these roofing companies would be around everywhere, right? Basically replacing, replacing roofs because it was actual yeah. damage. Mm-hmm. And for many people, what they would just do is they would just wait until the next hailstorm would hit. And they're like, I'll just wait. And then once that happens, because of insurance, et cetera. Uh, but that's really more replacing thing because of just something that is no longer functioning right well. Mm. As opposed to aesthetics, something that wants to just visually look better. Um, and that makes it pretty difference, of course, in terms of thinking about how to market to those, those consumers, especially how what drives, at the end of the day, that homeowner to want to make these kind of upgrades in their house. Mm. Yeah, and I think the 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 idea that you know maybe the practical side of things, uh, damage from a storm, or you know my roof is old, I need to replace. All of those things seem very logical that that would be the, one of the drivers. So the idea that you know increasingly, or the index is actually on. No, I want things to look a little bit better, and I want it to um, add value to my home overall. That's a bit of a surprise. But let's let's look at homeowners really quickly and some of what the op ed says as well. So uh, I'll read this one to you and you comment. Latinos are hands-on with the installation, for example, of a new roof. Right. Why is that important? That's crazy, right? Like we think, we think about this. I kind of think about my experience growing up, right? Like my dad was the king of uh, wanting to fix everything himself. And, you know, for that reason, I learned how to do a lot of stuff, like how yeah. to be able to change things and you had to do it. So this idea of proximity is, I think, a really interesting concept. And what that means for this community. And, it, and literally, part of what we were looking at, uh, you know, this actually was done a little while ago, um, was uh, this concept that at the end of the day, for Latino homeowners, many of them are much closer to the actual work being done. Mm. Right. So there is a case, you know, you think about most dynamics uh, where something wrong with the plumbing, you call a plumber, they come and fix it. Imagine the scenario where you call a plumber and then you get in there with a the plumber, like, well, let's take a look at it. Let's see, let's see <laughs> what's going on here. Seat. Let me, let me, let me jump in there. Let with me hold you. the wrench for you. It out. But when you yeah. see this kind of dynamic in the case of the roofing industry, especially replacement of, of roofs, it, I think it's a really interesting, uh, there's all these sort of side, once again, ideas that can come up from it. One is this concept that maybe part of the reason could be related to the fact that there is just closer proximity to the people, the people that do the work, the people that actually, our, our, our contract in the work, right? Um, it could also be the case because of we having so many things that are in this industry, just people just being more connected to people that are actually work in, in the roofing industry, right? Or yeah. that are roofers or that are contractors, right? And then I think I also think there is this element of do-it-yourself kind of dynamic that I think it's going to have in general um, that probably gets people a little bit closer to wanting to actually get involved. Uh, but it makes all kinds of impact as it relates to uh, to to people really being able to like make decisions because if the closer you are to the work, the more informed you're probably going to be, or the more informed you have to be, uh, or have to be informed by the contractors, and therefore they're going to play a little bigger role in deciding what specific products you use one way or the other. Yeah, it's a t- there's less degrees of separation, right? I think that's how you yeah. phrased it in the past between the the homeowner and the person doing the work. That one's interesting and has implications. The other one is this driver of 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 just you know involvement and participation. Um, 
in the work mm-hmm. that's being done itself, because, you know, manufacturers and their people who are in that world need to ask themselves how they can involve Latino homeowners in a different way throughout that process. Right. So this right. whole of like, set it, set it and forget it is broadly mm-hmm. not the way that this works. So if it's not, well, then what's your process look like? How do I, how do I modify things? How do I change things on the basis right. of a different psychological driver? Right. The, the, those are important considerations. Okay. Mm-hmm. Here's the last one that we'll cover. And for the rest, you got to read the op-ed Latino homeowners are financially leveraged, but determined. What does that mean? Yeah. Um, it's just, you know, we're, we're scrappy folk is what I would say <laughs> in terms of financing. Right. So you think about um, traditionally when work like this gets done tends to be, you know, you it's through insurance many times, or sometimes it's a personal finance, getting a loan, a home loan, a credit card, equity line of credit, equity line like of that. credit. A lot of people, yeah, like people use the kind of the value of their home as a way to um, extract that, you know, capital out to be able to make improvements. In this case, what you saw was a situation where people were literally pulling out, were using multiple sources of credit, of loan, of personal and professional to be able to like put together uh, what the funds that were required in order to do the work. So there is this, and I think this speaks to a broader issue in general. What I do, I do believe there's still a pretty large opportunity is this idea of that in this Latino community, there's still so much opportunity to help this community become better financially knowledgeable, right? Uh, there is still a, a level of folks that are underbacked, um, underinformed. Right. That's why you've seen growth in, in companies around sort of fintech that are aimed specifically around Latino communities that are looking to help people become build their credit, get more knowledgeable. And I think this applies directly to this into this industry as well. Um, and that's a big opportunity that I think applies to a lot of different folks. If you are in that kind of category of thinking about, you know, building out services, et cetera, that are in the Latino market. And, and part of that thesis is to help folks become better, better empowered around their financial uh, future. It's, I, just, I still think there's an opportunity there. And you have seen, I think, a number of companies sort of take uh, positions in that area to try to build out products that help address exactly that. And this is just another data point that supports that. Mm. Yeah, agreed. And we'll include uh, a link to the op-ed in the show notes here. And, you know, we'll talk more about this kind of stuff. There's a lot of movement in the the whole kind of B2B world. We've talked some about that and um, the, the, the importance that communities of color play in that universe as it expands. So this is part of that work. I think a lot of it is super interesting. I think there's major implications or opportunities, actually, just opportunities for uh, you know, for these companies, because presumably you could say, well, we don't have to do much. We'll just kind of, you know, the market will eventually everybody will catch up. It's kind of the, 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 the attitude, you know, 20, 30 years ago when people said, well, everybody will be speaking English eventually. So I don't know that we need to worry about that. Right. You could do uh, that or you could look sure. at some of this stuff as an opportunity. I mean, what was interesting, Charlie, and we talked about this a lot, is that when you think about B2C versus B2B on the B2C world, uh, the efforts around marketing, specifically and engaging diverse communities, and and specifically in this case, we're talking about Latinos, is much much further ahead than anything that yeah. has been done on the B two B world. And I think there is this sort of growing recognition that when you think about businesses and what is the demographic that is most that is growing the fastest and becoming new business owners is Latinos. So yeah. you're having like this catch up moment that things happen across multiple industries that are now thinking about how do we better engage with this audiences, because this is not going to be a big constituent at the business side uh, mm. for us to market to and engage with if we want to continue to grow in at the rates that we want to grow in. 
Absolutely. All right. Well, good stuff there. And we'll, uh, again, follow up with more information as we uh, as we publish this op-ed and other thought leadership work. All right, let's change gears. So last week, Jesus, uh, Austin-based electrical car maker Tesla, our good friend Elon Musk, uh, announced, had a, had a big meeting out here in California with Gavin Newsom in attendance, where he announced the opening up of an engineering headquarters in California up in the Bay Area. A little more than a year after the company first announced plans to move its overall headquarters to to Austin, right, to Central Texas. Mm-hmm. I know that this caught your attention, so I'll let you kind of riff first For on sure. why you think it's interesting. Um, and then, then I'm happy to share my thoughts. Well, yeah, I mean, this caught my attention for a number of reasons, starting with the obvious, which is Elon Musk kind of went through a pretty public breakup with California back in uh, 2020, right? A lot of this was based on the COVID uh, restrictions. Uh, If you recall, he was one of the folks that basically opened their operations pretty early on and kind of in uh, a little bit of an FU move to the state, um, was very adamant about the fact that he did not believe or wanted to like continue to operate in person. I just had a lot of disagreements with, um, with the state. I think at one point he basically referred to California as being over-regulated, over-litigated, uh, and over-taxed. He's called mm-hmm. over-relation, over-litigation, over-taxation was kind of like the main beef. Uh, so much so that he basically decided to that he was going to move the headquarters of Tesla out of the Bay Area and into Austin, which he did. He went and did it. And it was a very public move that was there. So now to fast forward, maybe about two years later, give or take, and recommitting to the Bay Area as a place where you're actually going to be putting the headquarters of engineering, which even he at this point is calling the fall to headquarters of the company, right? Because you think about a company that is so engineering driven, how do you have your your headquarters of engineering, you know, not really be your headquarters? Like, who Mm. else are you talking about, right? Like, that's not Mm going to be there. This is a very engineering driven company. I mean, Elon is a very engineering driven person. He's an engineer. Um. So it, 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 it caught my attention. A, the, the reversal was sort of one that was, okay, interesting, but that, you know, that's neither here or there. People change, you know, they're a little huffy and puffy and then kind of change their mind. It's not so much that. I think what I found really interesting was that this compared to a number of the different themes that have been out there for a few, like, years now, this idea of this talent exodus, both in companies and individuals out of the Bay Area, out of uh, Silicon Valley, um, what is that actually, how much is that really true versus versus reality? And then second, is this, uh, whether uh, directly admitted to or not, an indication that at the end of the day, you have to be where talent is. And for a company like Tesla, where Elon is very, very adamant about having people in person, where yeah, you are and you're in person yep. matters. Like, it ma- yeah. I, 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 th- I literally, right now I'm in downtown LA, and I was just on the way here thinking about it, walking around the office. I'm being like, man, is this like best location to get the most people to come to be in the office? Like, what does this actually mean in terms of like proximity to things to everyone that I want to have here to be able to increase the number of days that I build an office? Like, I th- think about those kind of things. And I'm sure Elon thinks about that as well and the kind of engineering uh, uh, caliber that he wants to have in his company. So, I don't know. Is this an admission that that really Austin, as attractive as it is, because Austin got a big influx of people moving to the city. Yes, it still doesn't compare to being in Silicon Valley, where there's just like a whole sort of infrastructure reset up for like these kind of folks. A lot of talent that's already there that maybe doesn't actually want to move. 
to a place like like Austin, even with all of its tax benefits? Like, what what does it all mean, right? Um, so anyway, so that's why I thought it would be interesting for us to talk about it. So these are some of the themes yeah. that sort of came to my mind. Yeah, no, and I, th- I agree with most of what you said. I, I do think that there's a tendency or can be a tendency with Elon, uh, p- people who comment on him um, who are not fans to, uh, you know, kind of make too much about certain things. And there has been some of that, especially out in the Twitter sphere. A couple thoughts that I would add to yours. Uh, number one, the great irony of the engineering headquarters move, which he has at some point, I guess during this press conference, he referred to it as almost like a dual headquartered company. And to your point, it kind of has to be if your engineering, which is the brain of your operation in such an engineering focused enterprise is not is somewhere different than everything else. Right. Manufacturing, marketing, et cetera. So um, the, the, the irony, though, of all that is that they're moving back in. They're moving into the old HP uh, headquarters, which themselves HP moved to Houston. So, so they're, they're like mm-hmm. swapping with another kind of tech, uh, old guard tech company, Silicon Valley company that moved its headquarters to Texas. Um, the, well, the, and the HP things- is actually kind of given the nod as having started Silicon Valley. Oh so that's yeah, where they they're one they're one of if not the first company that really had large operations there in the '30s or something. It was crazy. Yeah, but, they've been around H- for a long time. But HP is like I don't even think. I mean, I guess you could put them in that same category. Ethereum is such like old tech now. Oh, that, maybe it's yeah, just me. That, that I don't know guard, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, their business has changed. You know, I mean, they're they're. I mean, how much money are they making? They're almost like the the razor and cartridges business now. You know what I mean? It's like yeah, that. How it's, much are they actually making versus how much have they just put their brand on it and just selling? How much of it is like all the other functional support rather than and consumables really and all that other stuff? Driven. That's the thing, right? I think I think that's the interesting uh, thing. Question here is that Tesla is still very much, as it should be, a very engineering-driven company, right? They are known for their technology. They are constantly innovating. Like, that is what differentiates, and especially now, this moment. By the way, that's the other thing, uh, interesting concept. We've been talking about this. Mm. We've had a debate here, you and I, multiple times, and, you know, we'll see how wrong I am or right over time. About I think that Tesla has gotten a lot of, has taken a lot of hits in their brand, Mm-hmm. And now their competition is, they're still not a parody, of course not, because they're way ahead. Having said that, they're a lot closer. And they have to be a lot more worried about now keeping whatever edge they still remain, still remains there, keeping or trying to grow it. So does it mean more? It's even more imperative to have the right kind of engineering support, the right, like being in the right location to get the top, top talent. It doesn't put them at disadvantage of being in a place like Texas. Or like Austin mm-hmm. specifically. As mu- and mm-hmm. once again, Austin is great. I think he has a bunch of stuff that people people have moved there. They've gotten a lot of people there. And that uh, that is kind of where I was going, that I do think that woven into a lot of this decision-making was on some level, some, you know, some amount of emotion back two, two three years ago mm-hmm. when this happened. And, you know, now c- cooler heads are maybe prevailing, and he might see this as a move to kind of stabilize some of that, right? You've got a massive operation in California. You're no longer enemies with, you know, the 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 ascendant governor of the state who himself is considering a run for the presidency, et cetera. Maybe there's a way to keep the independents and neutrals who are starting to kind of fade on your brand less antagonistic. There's there there might be some of that. You may I think there might more be more diversified, Charlie, as well, right? Like now yeah. his entire operation is not contingent on whatever decision this very liberal, you know, governor makes one way or the other. Correct. Right. So yeah. that could so, also be, I, I can see that point. Like, Hey, let's actually break this up. So like we're, we feel that we have a little more freedom on this side while knowing there's still such a tech and talent hub in this other area. Yeah. No, I think that there's a number of those factors that 
are under consideration. I think your point about the talent in an environment where he is very much on record that people are in the office and like, that's the way this works. And not just in the office, but like, you know, not unusual to, you know, sleep in the office to like yeah. raise your kids yeah. there in that kind of culture. Um, that idea of having a concentration, not access to talent in and of itself, because I would argue if you're, if you're remote, if you can, if you, if you support remote, uh, work that doesn't really matter as much, but you know, in a, in a culture where you're trying to get a high concentration of talent, all mm-hmm. geographically located to me, that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. you know, uh, so there, you've got a political element, you have a workforce element to consider to your point, you have a brand, um, uh, you know, thing to consider where I think a little bit too much was made of it is this idea of like where it's moving its headquarters overall, but returning to, to you know, kind of capitulation uh, thing. I think that's too far. I also think the idea that, um, you know, it, like he he said, even when he moved to Austin, we'll always have a presence in California. So it's not like he said we're d- defecting from the state or anything like that. So I think that there's some some things have made a little bit too much of. But I think by and large, it's a multifaceted thing that had a number of different considerations, some of which we've discussed. And I think they'll probably yeah. be better off for well, it. Well, Elon is is become very Trumpy in the sense of like he makes his grand old statements and he doesn't fully mean them all the time or changes his mind on it. Because he could have moved the company to the headquarters to Austin, done exactly what he what he done, without going through all the public fanfare of calling out the state, saying I'm taking things out if you don't change, if you let me operate. Like he was very as he's very as he has been and become very very public about his displeasure with the state and the way it's run, and therefore why was he was moving. Mm-hmm. So there is an element of it's not actually eating crow, I don't think, because. And, and Gavin Newsom, I think, is playing it brilliantly because he's like, great, yeah, come, big a big hug, let's do it. You know, like, I'm glad to have you back. This is great. Um, and he's not, you know, this is not a moment to gloat or roll in anyone's faces rather than, you know, bring more opportunity to the state. So it, it's, but it, but I, but I, it was funny, in the article that I was looking at from Reuters, um, there was a professor, um, I don't think I just lost it, uh, where, uh, yeah, there was a professor, uh, Stephen Diamond, who was an associate mm-hmm. professor of law at Santa Clara University. He said, it is a reminder of the advantage of building on success in California and does suggest that Musk made a strategic mistake in moving his headquarters to Texas. Now, that may be a little bit of an overstatement, but there is an element, once again, if you're an engineering-based firm, it's all around innovation, putting it in a place where you really does, you're now on an island to some extent of where all these other folks, because that's the truth is, man, like, we're, we work in a dynamic now that less and less people are going to work in one company for the rest of their careers. Mm. People are going to want to move around, jump around. It is tough. If you're someone that is <clears throat> highly skilled, wanting to move from one state to another, uh, it's, 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 it's difficult having to uproot your, your family. So being in a place is a little more concentrated with more opportunity if you do want to move around. It just makes more sense, you know, especially yeah. for like the kind of folks that I think he's, he's trying to bring on board or brings on board. Agreed. Agreed. So we'll see how things turn out. Um, and, you know, just to touch last point on the comment that you mentioned about, you know, our ongoing debate, uh, you know, it is worth for listeners to look at Tesla's Q4 results, right? Which mm-hmm. it's certainly lower in terms of, uh, 
I guess ultimately, uh, what is it? Net profit, I guess, because their expenses were a lot higher, but, you know, never sold more cars and sold mm-hmm. more cars than anybody else. Like, I mean, by a long shot in, in terms of growth year over year. So there's really good fun. There's, there's, there's fundamental business things you would look at and go, oh, this is a stock to buy. And yet the market share value has dropped pretty significantly, at least in a, in yeah. a, in a, in a, in a comparative period of time. So, so you've got this crazy dynamic that's happening. My, look, my argument with these things, and I-, I Oh, wait, I that's the Disney to, argument, right? Highest subscription, yeah. highest uh, loca- uh, revenue associated with parks, and a CEO gets get ousted right? yeah. at the exact same time. Yeah. Well, part of it is because they're spending so much money on content that and it's a company that's been very profitable for a very long time. So there's actually also real reasons behind it. Even though when you look at the top line metrics, it looks all good. But there's the a huge Tesla factor of politics involved in it in both cases, right? There's both a lot of, sure, of you know, sure. you and I talked about that whole consortium of conservative investors that are like, you mm-hmm. know, all of the in Disney, their most hated companies, and Disney was at the very top of that. That matters at some point, and you, it can <laughs> it, it can blind your your kind of financial acumen. I think a lot of that happens with Tesla, but in the other direction. So yeah. um, anyway, all right, we got to move on. So n- next one is uh, the Supreme Court case. Uh, Gonzalez versus Google. Now you've got more background on this. I'll let you take it over. But basically there is a case in front of the Supreme Court being adjudicated or considered right now. In fact, there was all uh, all the questioning, three hours of it um, with the justices just last week. And there's been Mm -hmm. a bunch written about this, a lot of uh, spilled ink about this. But I guess this is looking at the um, the, the 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 two thirty law, the federal you know policy section essentially yeah. section mm. two thirty that that broadly provides pretty dramatic immunity to social platforms for the things that are on their platform. That's being challenged again. Why is this important for us right now? Yeah. So just to take it a step back in terms of why this case is being even heard to begin with, right? So this case was brought by the family of Noemi Gonzalez. Uh, who was a 23-year-old college student um, who was killed in uh, in a restaurant in Paris during that terrorist attack that happened back in 2015, right? Now, the family of of of, of Noemi basically making the, made the argument that they that YouTube, right, had not done enough, uh, or that YouTube specifically because of the algorithm that they use uh, were actually helping be able to make or turn people to become more extreme. Uh, people that already maybe have some tendency to become more extreme based on what content its, uh, its algorithm is offering back up. So it's basically putting liability back on a, a place like, like YouTube of uh, this really dramatic case. But really what it, what it is, is a basically a case against uh, Section 230, right? Which Section 230, uh, for those that may not be familiar, is basically the law that is that uh, that has protected uh, internet companies in general from not being liable for anything that users uh, post on that on that platform, right? Uh, the real world uh, uh, analogy of this is like, and I've heard someone's described this way. I thought it was like really interesting. It's such a like old way of thinking about it, but like, okay, I guess someone never heard it. It's like think about having a uh, a, a little billboard in a school and then someone puts an announcement and puts an announcement to, hey, join this terrorism group. Like you can't sue the school for that. They're not liable for that. Now, of course, what makes this different in this case like this, a case of YouTube, is how much does, does a place like YouTube, it, through its algorithm, actually uh, promote, actually elevate content that could be harmful, that could be terrorist content, and continue to feed it to users and in that process, you know, get them more and more radicalized. 
Um, I also specifically looked at the language of this, right? So the language of Section 230 is, is this is what the whole thing is contingent on. It basically says, no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider, right? Mm. So it, it gives this like blank blanket cover, right, uh, on the on these companies. Now the tension here is you have uh, for a while people have been pushing against Section Two Thirty, saying no, they should be liable. That's one. The other sort of uh, position that is in some way directly contradicting is this idea of like, no, these should be town squares. This should be all about free speech. The right? so on one hand, right. So the more you actually push these companies to be liable for what users post, the more they will inherently want to regulate, want to even control even more what content on these platforms because they don't want to get sued. So it becomes even less of a town square, right? So yeah, then it turns them into magazines, hyper, basically. Becomes hamper, gets hampered even more, right? So so then what do you do, right? So that's really interesting. So this case was basically, uh, I think like a three-hour argument that was on last Tuesday, maybe, yep. right, a week ago. Um, and at least based on the early reports of what came out of it, uh, we won't know any of the results. I think it's till the, it's the summer, right? When they, when all the all the yeah, the actual when the results are or the the decisions all, yeah, are yeah. Mm-hmm. decisions are all basically made public. Uh, we won't hear it till the till, till the summer, but just based on the line of question, it, it felt like it's going to stay. It's not going to get overturned. Mm-hmm. Section two thirty, but I thought it was actually a really good point of conversation for for us to actually you know, to talk well, about. Well, there, there, there's there's two things that that come to mind for me almost immediately, and that is um, that this, you know, and I don't know exactly how to fix it, but the, a lot of this debate back and forth and position seems to rest on the difference between private and public kind of you know companies or private companies being what they are. <clears throat> excuse me, where you can do pretty much what you, you know, whatever you want, so long as it's within the law and public or utilities being stuff that's really highly regulated and that has, you know, all of these different stipulations. And I feel that there's a lot of energy lost in that debate when I believe that we should look, and as I've said before, at the classification of social platforms in a different way and maybe even come up with a third rail definition of of an entity that is neither private nor a utility and maybe seek to legislate that and put companies in that category where they can have maybe more latitude than private companies, um, but also take seriously the impact that they have on society at large because they do. So I feel so much of this is like, well, they're a private company or, you know, they're destroying the universe. We have to, you know, turn them into the post office. Like there's so much of that kind of uh, tug of war that it feels like we're never going to actually get to an outcome. And maybe the solution is rather than voting up or down on section 230, reclassify a number of these companies into a different sort of language that actually contends with what the hell they are. Because Section 230 was written, you know, when we had publishers and, you know, websites and magazines. And it was like, okay, it's pretty clear what we've got. That's my first thought. Second thought is, I feel like I was trying to think of a good analogy, but I can't come up with one. I, 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 maybe, maybe an analogy of like, uh, you know, we're complaining about the types of oars to have on a boat when somebody just, you know, invented the outdoor, you know, the, 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 the outdoor engine for, for a boat. It's like compared to the, regulation is always so far behind technology, but we had a Pandora's box in December opened called generative AI that is now that now makes this argument to me like almost stupid. It's like, 
who cares? Do you have any idea like what's directly behind this in terms of AI and the implications that are around that for governments, for society, for everything else? And these guys haven't even begun to turn their attention to this. And we're like arguing about this issue. So those are two thoughts. I don't know which direction the Supreme but, Court is going to rule. Yeah. Um, but well, my let, guess, let me ask a question, mm-hmm. Charlie. Yeah. yeah. Well, forget how they're going to rule. What do you, do you think that, do you think that having these companies be protected and not have any liability for what other users put? Is that a good thing or a bad thing in general? Uh, you know, I think it's a very broad question. And I think that sure. when you say these, when you say these companies, what do you C- mean? Companies that are companies that primarily operate by having other users upload content onto them mm-hmm. where they surface content. They themselves are for the most part, not creating the content. They're surfacing content. Making it, making it discoverable, but they're not, but they mm-hmm. themselves are not necessarily creating the content. Yeah. Do you think it's I a mean, good or bad thing for them to be liable or not based on what other people put? I think that they should have some liability um, yeah. because they're, they're opening up their pipes and making, you know, you know, telephone companies and, uh, and other folks have some liabilities, although they're significantly yeah. lower, which is the same category that, that Facebook is in with, you know, right now they're like, they're, For sure. they're essentially being treated like a, like a phone call. Right. But, but again, my point is, I think they're different than that. So they should have liability, but should it be the liability that, you know, time magazine has? You know, to like say, oh, you 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 slandered me, you libeled me. I, I I don't I don't think that that I think that that is at odds with their kind of reason for being. I think it destroys what they are, and maybe well, some of these yeah. things should be. Yeah. I mean, there there really are exceptions to this, right? They are where they are actually liable for things like uh, I think like child pornography is one of them, and there's other things mm-hmm. that, that already fall right now that you just can't just if a user puts it out. Like they are required to go in and actually try to do everything they can to make sure that that content doesn't get proliferated. Look, the, the way that I think about it, I think of it from two lenses. One is um, you can think about the context of like what gives people seen at the end of the day is like people also have individual responsibility for what content they consume and what they do based on that content they consume, right? So there's the element of that, of if I'm not searching for, looking for, uh, terrorist content, I'm probably not going to find it, right? Now, there may be cases where it still gets served to me, potentially, right, some version of it. Um, but in general, it tends to be, like, very driven by your own behavior, right? Yeah. Um, I think that's one. But, th- but the second thing that I do think about is that the algorithms that these companies do have, not only do they influence what people watch, they influence yeah. what people create. And I think that's the problem. Right. Because I'm telling you right now, like based on the stuff that I'm doing now on the sports side, like we look at all the time, what works, what doesn't, what's getting the most audience. And that for sure influences how we decide to create. Yeah. Well, decide to create. So they may not be choosing directly this one or that one, but they're creating a system that does give pretty strong signals back to people that are creating, uploading content to do more of this or less of that. And from that perspective, you're not just simply being a place where things just get surfaced, like sort of naturally just get surfaced. No, you're actually influencing the content that gets there. It is indirect, but it is, but in some cases it becomes pretty direct pretty quickly. And, and right? you make an excellent so, point. And that's the, my re- the reason why I keep saying like a different classification, because if they, what I agree, the algorithm is the principal thing to focus on. So what if these companies, by virtue of this new classification, maybe kept some of the 230 things that they have now, but were forced to publicly reveal their algorithm every quarter? 
Like we have to look at it. Sure. We have to have an understanding as consumers what the heck we're when we're just sitting there, like what's happening. It's almost like, you know, the phone company example. If they were programming the phones to allow certain spam calls to end to, to hit some phones and not others. I'd want that revealed so at least I understood what was happening. But again, under 230, the way that I read it, it's like it doesn't leave – it's almost binary. It's like yes or no kind of thing. And I feel that that's almost trying to solve it at the wrong end. Yeah, and also, I mean, of course, the question immediately becomes, okay, great. Let's say they have some liability and you add more exceptions, including terrorism. What's terrorism content? Right. You could start going, okay, if it's ISIS and beheading, okay, okay, fine. That's probably an easy one. What about January 6th? What about sure. some of that? What about sure. What about sure. like, you start like that gray line becomes like. And the reason it, why. It goes from a line to like a field of, you know, like it's sure. just it's so broad. And the so reason broad. why child porn and things like that are so easy to spot is because it's binary. It's based on ages, right? So under 18 or in the case of, of the COPA restrictions, which are federal laws, under 13, right? So it's it's easy to go like, oh, boom, you're, it's like binary, right? But things that are, yeah. to your point, some people may say, hey, January 6th, that's not terrorism. Some people on the other side may say, um, you know, Black Lives Matter uh, protests were terrorism. Some other people might say mm-hmm. Al-Qaeda wasn't terrorism. So, you know, you've got a lot more gray right. in those areas because you can't tether it to a, something that is, uh, you know, binary like are you 18 or older like that's an easy one but, to but make even, that, but that even the call. argument on what's what's porn or not that also has changed and i think that gets questioned all the time i i've seen uh content on places like i think maybe instagram and tiktok maybe tiktok one i've seen it in where you have creators literally taunting the platforms like take me down and the people breastfeeding kids mm-hmm. right and like where mm-hmm. does that where does that fall Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you see like that pendulum is kind of like, it, it's like hard to place it exactly where that falls. Is that indecent exposure? Yeah, to some extent, but it's, it's also just breastfeeding. Like, is that, are we really going to put that in the exact same category that someone just exposing themselves? We shouldn't. It doesn't, yeah. doesn't feel like those two things are similar. And then you have creators that are literally like taunting the platforms, like take me down. Like, let, I want to see you do that. Sure. Right? And so in, in it becomes ten- like really, Intent matters, but I, 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 I shudder at the thought of a machine trying to determine intent. That's the, the really, you know, well, scary you yeah. thing. Yeah, it, it is. Um, look, I, I think we, there's a way, there's a number of different ways to do this. I think one is to continue to add to the exception rules, right, of what kind of falls within this, this category of, of whether or not it's considered uh, uh, like terrorism content. So you could continue to chip away at it. Um, the other route will be to just get rid of it altogether and say, yeah. listen, we're, you know, if your algorithm is influencing how the content, that, not just the content that is, that's featured, but what content gets created and uploaded, then you are in actually, actually putting a, a thumb on that, on that scale. You are. Yeah. So either take your thumb off the scale and don't impact those algorithm as much as you are doing right now, make it more like what you upload is kind of just there which means that stuff won't go as organically viral, just take a lot longer or be liable. And, and then now you have to be much more thoughtful about which content you're giving uh, promotion to and, you, and you're pushing, you know, that's, that would be the way, the way to think about it. Now that will have an impact in terms of what content gets, uh, gets taken down and what gets made available. Um, and maybe, the, maybe the result of that is just having more companies out there that have different kind of content that is, that is out there. I don't know. Like, 
I think that's part of the problem is that we've had such a concentration in platforms. You know, there's only one YouTube. There really isn't a good equivalent to YouTube. Right now, there's like, yeah, multiple different social media companies, but like there's one TikTok that is really good mm. and really successful. There isn't enough other ones that have different kind of content. So I think that's the problem that you get into is that it's just too concentrated on other platforms. Well, we'll find out here momentarily how uh, the Supreme Court rules. My guess is that, like you've said many times, I think it'll be one of those where both sides are slightly unhappy. But I do believe that there will be news coming out of this decision mm-hmm. um, and looking forward to uh, to reading it. Okay, Jesus, lightning round. Do you have a courage or cringe this week? Lightning round, 60 seconds or less. I don't go. All right. So <clears throat> my uh, my cringe is uh, on Ford actually patenting a system that would let cars repossess themselves if drivers miss payments. At first, the cars would lose the use of features like GPS, air conditioning, and the radio if the owner still <laughs> skips payments. If the, if the owner still skips the payments, Jesus, the car would lock them out and then drive itself to a repo agency or even to a scrapyard. Let me but tell you why? something. Yeah, they're I, one lawsuit away from that's going to get shut down like now. I mean, this, especially this is, the air conditioning. Imagine having your child in there. Oh, uh, and your and your condition turns off. But this Even is if you all. Paid any payment doesn't matter. Yeah. But th- this is it's such a hard cringe. It's terrible for the brand. Uh, like there's so many things to talk about. But the the broader reason why I'm cringe is this is continued evidence of the infantilization of people using technology to such a degree that technology to me. Uh, quoting Karl Marx here, not something I do every day, but technology is now the opiate of the people. This is the dumbest thing. I, I rented a car in, Sa- in the Bay Area last year. It was a Nissan Rogue. Don't ever buy one. It was a Nissan Rogue. This thing, the, the gas thing got past the quarter tank like it was almost a quarter tank empty. And the moment it passed mm-hmm. the quarter tank, the car started honking at me as I'm driving. Okay. So the people in front of me thought I was beeping at them. And it was this, it wouldn't, I tried to back into a spot to parallel park. And you know how, when you have to get very close to a bumper and like, it's just life in the big city, the thing would not go back any further. It stopped no matter what I did. It was like, you're just too close. You can't drive that much that, that close to that next car. It we're, we're t- we've taken things way too far. And this is just continued evidence of how technology in some cases is being looked at as a way to infantilize adults. It's a hard mm-hmm. cringe for me, no matter how convenient it may be for Ford to get their cars back that have missed payments. Factor that into your business plan. Cringe, hard, right. hard pass. Well, by the way, they do factor into the business plan. This is why they keep on financing people that can't afford these cars to begin with. Like, there's no limit of that. Let's be really honest. Like, you're getting people to, people are, they, they're making cars available for people to buy that they can't afford, knowing that they're going to end up like failing on, the, on those loans and then they get to take it back and resell it. Absolutely. Absolutely. That is factory. Yeah, it's, it's a terrible decision. Yeah. The, the second there is like a something happens to someone because of this, like, that gets shut down immediately. Yeah. The lawsuits are, the, the lawyers are like just, their mouths are love watering it. on this one. They love it. They love it. I know yeah. it's crazy. All right, Asus, we got to wrap up. But uh, to everybody listening, uh, check out the show notes on that op-ed. Um, you know, share it with people because it's a really interesting thing. And uh, you know, continue to live a life unsiloed. We will see you guys next week. Bye.
BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.